Okay, good. <clears throat> so tonight we're talking about the tenth parami, which is uh, equanimity. And uh, we're going to have another month, which will take us through to the last meeting day of this year. And that will be our year-long endeavor into the parmies to elucidate, elucidate them and to understand what they are. I hope people have a good feeling for an orientation that they're not a cultivation, although one can incline one's mind towards that. It's not a sense of trying to gain something as you're um, on a scavenger hunt to try to get a little more generosity and a little more this or that. But rather, it's a it's an, uh, a willingness to be quiet with oneself and to see what manifests from that quiet. And you'll be absolutely surprised. You'll recognize most of the paramis and some of the actions you take, though your intentions weren't necessarily towards those paramis at all as we get quieter. And so really this is a training in how to become quiet or how to release the noise that is constantly like that peanuts figure pig pen, you know, with all the flies and mosquitoes around him. That's sort of like the container of our thoughts and we're trying to see through all that buzz of activity to see some sanity, to have some orientation of sanity to our life. And the paramis point in that direction. They're huge, they're immense. And so when the self gets, measures oneself against that parami, it often feels overwhelming, fearful even. And so uh, we often try to move towards it in a piecemeal fashion. Now this one equanimity, I think uh, there's probably no word that creates more disorder and disease than the word equanimity. And I, th I think perhaps there's no word, there's no spiritual word, perhaps other than love, that is misrepresentative or misunderstood. It's, it's, it's a tragedy what this tradition has made of this word. In fact, I don't use it very often because I, it's so misunderstood that people um, become uh, enamored with the word itself and make it a whole religion investment. And so we really have to understand this thing. So what I would ask of each of us tonight is to clear the slate of what this word means to you. And let's try to see if we can't freshen it up a little bit. See if we can't try to approach it from something, from a new direction. Uh, um, the reason that it, I think it's so misunderstood is that it, it can conjure up a safe haven for us, a place where we can go and be away from everything. Sort of like a respite, of, a respite area of the mind. And uh, we keep measuring how well we are meditating by how equanimous we are. As if that were a stick, like an oil gauge. And it, it just isn't. There, there, it's not a place, it's not a measurement. It really uh, needs to be understood thoroughly. <clears throat> and I think it's easiest to begin with what it's not, <laughs> because it's so misrepresented. Uh, it's not detachment, it's not disinterest, it's not disassociation, and it's not disengagement. 
<laughs> it's not indifference. So if it's not all those things, what could it possibly be? I mean, that's, those things uh, are what I'm hoping that my meditation will do for me, right? It will make me sort of like a flat line, right? So that I don't have any emotional spike happening to me and I can live life and kind of even keeled, except what we really mean is almost dead. We don't want any, we don't want any, any movement on the EEG. <laughs> but we're not going to find that. And um, that's just fear of pain, isn't it? When we're trying to find the sense of self, would love to secure a place that was, um, that was uh, distant and remote to the world. Somewhere that, like looking through the wrong end of binoculars, that it could look at things in a kind of, uh, you know, unemotional way. And that's a fear of being affected. It's fear of pain. It's a disconnection from life. Now, if we know anything in here, we know that meditation doesn't bring a disconnection to life. Disconnectedness is not the view, the intention or any other aspirant, uh, aspiration of the meditation. We're not trying to cut ourselves off. We're not trying to be remote. We're not trying to be distant. We're not trying to be disinterested. That's fear of what life offers us. And uh, it's not a place to hide. You know, when I was a, a young child, um, I... My, our house was very turbulent. I just remember a lot of yelling. And um, a lot of it was pointed at me. <laughs> Not that it was undeserved. But, uh, but I just I remember I was able to, uh, when, especially when my mother would come at me, I, would, I, could, I could get into this place where I was, it was like uh, I could see her very small. She was like she would get very small and I would be way back. It was like in a tunnel somewhere. And I, I loved that place because all the screaming and yelling, uh, it was quiet back in there and uh, very endearing, actually. I, you know, and, as it, and it became a, a place where I could go quite easily until I learned it was, <laughs> I was really disassociating <laughs> and uh, that I was, if I kept going in that direction, would become probably hospitalized. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, I see its appeal, especially if we live in a raucous, dramatic world with a lot of input coming at us, uh, having some sense that uh, meditation will give us a hiding place for all that is an, there's appeal to that. And uh, fi- fair enough, but that's not what meditation does. And... That's really um, uh, a mental illness. It's a, it's a hiding place. It's a safe haven. It's a psychotic hiding place, really, that we have to be very careful that we understand isn't the point of meditation. Now, um, I like to better um, uh, define equanimity is that it's a total embrace of what is. Now, that doesn't allow you to get out of a thing, does it? Total embrace of what is. And yet, 
it's defined by uh, two things, really. One is faith, and the other is understanding or wisdom. Now, why do I say that? Uh, Because when we learn about the nature of life, we become less fearful of it, and we become less identified with what it is that's arising. And with that decreased identification, that's not a backing away. That's a, a lessening of our reactivity to what it is that's occurring. So there's less reaction to what's going on because we're not as fearful about what's going on, one. And two, we know we have the potential or possibility of being able to hold what's going on. And when we were afraid of what was going on, we didn't think we did have the capacity to do that. Our emotions, our thoughts, other people's reactions, other people's ideas or projections about us. And so we kept uh, reacting, and that reactivity caused a kind of drama inside of us, a turbulence, a fearfulness. And uh, then we tried to control the situation. We tried to ratchet down upon the situation in ways that we could make it controllable. And that's pretty much, if you look at the fiber of how most of our years have been led, it's that dynamic. And as we become more and more aware of what it is that the mind is doing and what it is that it holds, in fact, if you do a reasonable amount of meditation, at some point you will have seen the entire range of the continuum of what the mind does to you. I mean, it's fairly limited. It has different configurations of thoughts and emotions, but once you know the, know the continuum and have felt the different emotional expressions in oneself, the different storylines that um, feel compelling, once we have settled with that, there's really not too much else the mind does, right? I mean, we know what fear feels like, we know what Envy, jealousy, impatience, irritation, annoyance, anger. I mean, we just you just don't have to... Just being with yourself in the course of the time gives you familiarity with the content of what your life is about. And that familiarity isn't contempt. It's just a settlement with it. You're, we aren't afraid of what the mind is doing or what the mind could do. So no matter what the situation is, no matter what the kickback is, we can deal with that. We can deal with that. I remember a a question to Ajahn Sumedho one time. Most of you know him. He's uh, spoken to this group. Somebody said, um, brought up, the the person was questioning Ajahn Sumedho from his worst fear. And he said, "My, my worst fear is that I'm going to be get Alzheimer's disease. What would you do if you got Alzheimer's disease? And Ajahn Sumedha said, well, if I get Alzheimer's disease, I'll work with it. I mean, that's the, that's the expression of someone who knows himself well enough that, he's, that there's no jolt there. God, I don't know what I would do with, about that. You know, it's, there's nothing like that left. And so the reactivity just overseeing, just our willingness to participate in our seeing, in our, in our um, internal processes, smooths out uh, the unexpected, makes it very familiar to us. 
And there's value in the repetition. Some of us, I know, have meditation practice where you just keep thinking that, oh, I've seen this over and over and over again. Well, there's value in the repetition of that over and over again-ness because it does, it breeds, it gives us a, a sense of, you know, so what else is new? I can deal with this. And even if it's amplified, which some emotions will be from time to time, it's okay. I can deal with this. I can deal with grief. I can. What can I deal with? What can't? What can't you deal with? And so, so that's. So you can feel the edges coming off of some of this, and that's the first acknowledgement of understanding working in in a conducive way of less of, of, of less harm, less fear. And a, and a more friendly internal environment. And uh, that's extraordinarily important for the development of being still. Because if we're not uh, forcing a reactive pattern to everything that's going on, then what happens is that we become still with what's going on over time. And as we become quieter, more still with what's... then Really, there's not much here, people. You know, it's just experiences. All we're ever having, moment after moment, all life could ever be is an experience. We make it into something, but it's not that. We make it into a three-dimensional something. Really, it's just an experience of thought, encircling, and added to emotional emotions, but it's just sight, sound, smells, and tastes, and physical sensations. That's all it can be. And so, what can, what, what's, so what's so upsetting about that? And, and there's, a, there's, a way some, there's a way that, that it, there becomes a, a moment, a threshold, in which there's a kind of a relief. You know, well, I don't have to get so, I don't have to get so embattled in all of this. And uh, that's, a movement towards stillness. Now, uh, as we become more still, and this is an important point, we have moments in which we see life as from a perception of perfection. Uh, when we're not reacting to it, Uh, there is, will be a time, and some of you might have had that time, where you just see that it is what it is. And that it's perfect in, the, in its expression. It's perfect in its expression. Now you say, what do you mean? It's perfect in its hunger? It's perfect in its war? Is it, what do you mean by that? that yes, it's perfect in its expression. Now, some people find their way to that limited expression of stillness, because it is limited, it's not balanced, but let me just talk about it for a moment, because I was in Burma uh, as a monk, a young monk, I had just taken robes, and I was spending a number of months there meditating, and uh, I would sneak out food, which wasn't a monk-like thing to do, but anyway, I would sneak out food, 
they gave you all this meat, and I wasn't eating meat then either. So I would take my bowl and take all this meat, and then I'd go out and feed the dogs that were starving. All they would get was white rice. And so I I just, uh, I don't know, I just wanted to feed the dogs. So I'd go out and feed the dogs with all this meat that I didn't eat. So one of the monks who was sort of my senior monk and had responsibilities over the Westerners to keep them in line saw me feeding the dogs with all this meat and just came up and just, I mean, he just, uh, he could speak English, so I knew what he was saying. (laughs) And he just went up, he just, I mean, he just, uh, he made it very, a very difficult moment for me. But I had been practicing a number of months there and I absolutely was in that place of non-reactivity where I was seeing just the perfection of everything and was unmoved. And I remember, like, this isn't the way I normally would be. I mean, I would be heartbroken that I was, you know, doing something wrong and all that, shame. and But I had none of that. It was a total flat. And I was seeing that his reaction to me was perfect and my non-reaction was perfect. Everything was just just the way it was. And I just remember having that continue for some period of time. And that was what most of us, that is what most of us call equanimity. That sense of, of emotional flatness, really. And may I say that that is a limited understanding of what equanimity does. And intensive practice can take us to that place of unemotional reactivity and it is amazing place because you think, well, I'm a, I, I can't be moved here. There's nothing that can ever affect me anymore. And you think, well, maybe I'll just take up, uh, you know, just take up a, take up a, take a place here, in this. Let this be it. Now remember that the parami before. Uh, equanimity was metta. And often these two dovetail into one another. And I'd like to remind people that when we base ourselves in love, which is also stillness, we feel and, and are affected by life very intimately. Very strong. I mean, there's, a very, there's a full embrace of life. We feel it. We feel, love feels that embrace. But it doesn't move in face of pain. It doesn't cringe or contract to the pain it sees. It feels it and just lets it be an open expression of the emotional tone in that moment. The compassionate tone, the sorrow we see. The, right? Now equanimity is both love. It has that effect of feeling, realizing the pain of the world, the sorrow of the world, and totally balanced with that is the perfection of what we are seeing. The unmoving quality. And that is a balance point. You move too far into reactivity, into the effect of thing, then you find yourself... uh, trying to, you find yourself reacting to the pain you're feeling and trying to do something 
about covering the pain up or doing something about the pain very quickly before we even understand what the pain is. If we go the other side of that balance, we feel the total perfection of life, that smooth quality of unemotional resonance, and we find a safe harbor there that is very protective and secure. And neither of those sides is in balance with the other. And may I say equanimity is a full embrace of life, realizing the pain, but also the perfection simultaneously. Simultaneously. Nothing is missed. Nothing is skirted. There's no motivation for aversion or seeking a safe place whatsoever. And so the heart is wide open. But because the heart is wide open, everything gets in. But the back is wide open, so everything also gets out. It comes in and it goes out. And that sense of absolute balanced perfection between the two is something that each of us need to get a sense of in our practice, and we can. You'll find that at times when you're quiet, you know, the world just feels at peace to you. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of emotional involvement. And other times when you're feeling the compassionate side of life, you'll feel this, everywhere you walk, you feel the sorrows of humankind around. And so how do we walk with both, within both? And that's really the question, that balance is really the question. And there's a kind of trust that's needed because what usually happens when we find ourselves uh, distraught about the conditions of life, we do a few things that have us lose our equanimity. The first thing we do is that uh, we don't really understand the nature of suffering. And so equanimity is built upon a certain factors of wisdom. One of them is knowing what the cause of suffering is. Now, all of us can give a good intellectual response, perhaps, of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, but I'm talking about the nature of the accountability of one's suffering. That suffering is what one is doing in oneself to the world which is creating the tensions that one is feeling about the world. And until we know that, a full stop within ourselves, that we are doing this, we're creating the tensions. We're creating our own anxiety, our own tensions to the world. It is us, not the world, that's doing it to us. We're doing it to the world. We're actually going out and actually uh, molding the world into a perception that we have. Uh, then equanimity is nowhere to be found. We have to understand that fact and also to be accountable for the pain of that fact. So that's the first thing. The second one is when you are viewing, when we are perceiving suffering, we also have to know the value of someone having to suffer. Uh, and that's hard because what the immediate response from most of us is and attempt to alleviate that suffering. But it's not always the best action to alleviate somebody's suffering. Sometimes the best thing to do is to leave them in their suffering so that they can come to the realization, be motivated,
to understand that suffering sufficiently and be willing to move out of it on their own. We can't, we don't really alleviate somebody's suffering. A person alleviates their own suffering. And I remember uh, in hospice care, I had a real um, poignant example of that. I was working with somebody, uh, it was a caregiver of a husband who was dying, a caregiver, his wife, and I was, I would sit there and we would have these intense conversations week after week and I would go in and I'd sit there and I'd listen to her and uh, the exchange of the grief and all the, the emotional difficulties she was going through. One time I went in and she was sitting down, I sat down and this is, I, I sat like this, I went in like this and I started to ask her, she says, you know, when you sit like that, you don't allow me, you're asking me to suffer again. You're asking me to express my suffering. I don't feel like expressing my suffering today with you. And I realized that the very motion I was taking was, you know, let's get down to it here and tell me about your, you know, you know, and that was forcing her or she felt it was forcing her to uh, come to a, to, do, to offer a response that, that was, which wasn't appropriate in that particular moment for her. And we can do this a lot. We, can, we don't value a person's willingness to grow through their suffering themselves and to come to their own understanding. We try to take it away from them. We try to, we try to extract it from them so that they won't have any suffering. If they, somebody's grieving, we go up to them and try to change the subject or distract them from uh, the grief to, to make them feel okay. Uh, we never realizing that grief has its own has its own growth in it, and only by feeling that grief sufficiently does somebody grow in the wisdom necessary through that grief. So, part of the equation of coming to equanimity is knowing the value of people suffering. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. You just the first, the knee-jerk response is to see what's appropriate, what the dialogue needs to be here, and whether the person is right and being able to understand sufficiently what's going on so that they can end their own suffering. And uh, that also understand that somebody grows spiritually, psychologically, emotionally by feeling that suffering and being aware of it. That's how growth occurs. It doesn't grow... Growth doesn't occur by me giving a Dharma talk. It grows by you living that talk as it's being spoken and seeing the points for you experientially and then going out and living those points. Uh, And finally, we have to be aware of our neediness to help. And that's a, a huge one for most of us. Most of us have a tremendous need. We have good hearts. I, I don't mean this in any way critical. But we, we kind of leap into the fray as uh, often, uh, you know, the protector of the innocent. And there's a kind of reactivity uh, and neediness in us to uh, interface with those who are needed of help because we need to be seen as someone who can help. And so we have a role that we're trying to fulfill and, and, uh, and it's based on our neurotic need rather than a sane and equanimous relationship. 
And that, that drives many, many, many caregivers. Perhaps most caregivers have that psychological need to take pain away from someone and to, and to be helped, because, probably because their pain is unrecognized in themselves. So these points are very important in getting ourselves in the position so that we can be quiet enough to see the world and to respond appropriately. This is a balance between truth and heart. Equanimity itself doesn't move. Now, what do I mean by that? Because I want to explain that or express that a little bit. Uh, there's a, some, there's some really good Dharma teachers out there now. I'm thinking in particular Eckhart Tolle, who talks a lot about the now. And I want to bring that into equanimity, that term into equanimity, but I want to do it through a Buddhist door so that you realize that the Buddhist meditation and now are really one and the same thing. And then I'm going to try to show you that through working within the now, we can come to an equanimous state if we do it uh, effectively. Uh, The first thing we have to understand is that the intention of all of Buddhist meditation, all of Buddhism in general, is to bring us into the present moment, right? That all this does is is it's a system of techniques or or, uh, tasks, so to speak, that allow us uh, to settle more and more into the present so that the present is seen for what it is. And... uh, that we then see how controlling we are of our experiences within the present and those controlling uh, exertions and efforts upon the present keep us from being present. When I'm trying to manipulate the present, I'm not being present because my manipulations are attempting to bring about a better present, a future present that supersedes the one that I'm in. And so the... When we're in the present moment, we are not really relaxed or content in the present moment. We're constantly manipulating the responses, the forms of the present moment to try to make the present moment more perfect than what we could think. We try to think of the the present in in, uh, future terms as being more perfect than it is at the present. (laughs) What? Then I just... (laughs) And we also learn that meditation is to begin to accommodate the present as it is. Not to continually make controlling demands upon it. Right? That's what the meditation is supposed to do. So if I'm not making controlling, manipulative responses to the present, if I'm just allowing it to be what it is, we see two things are going to happen. One is you begin to have faith that what is happening is perfect for itself. Or why wouldn't I try to control it? You see, so the sense of perfection comes from our willingness to be present to just what is without trying to constantly adjust the present into a more perfect present than what it is. And so as I relax more and more into the present, I release the need to control, which means that I have more and more faith 
that the present is going to take care of itself in a rightful way. That's an intimation of the perfection of the present. It also begins to tie us inextricably to faith. Faith that reality is fine the way it is, that it doesn't need my manipulation or control. And as I mentioned, within that faith comes a sense of harmlessness and non-fear. So the now begins to open up beyond the different forms that I have been trying to manipulate and control in my meditation. All my emotions, my, I, my tensions to whatever it is that's arising that I don't want to arise, the aversion responses I have to experiences in life, all of that is where the me- meditation intercedes. And as I don't intercede so much, space opens up around the forms. Because it was only my tension in wanting them to be different that kept that space from even being seen. Once I relax to things as they are, space opens up. That space is the relaxation, is the contentment of... It's awareness. Awareness. That space is equanimity. Now we have to understand, I think, that as we enter the present moment, the expressions, the sights and sounds and smells and tastes are not the complete present, right? They form the experiences within the present, but there's that space, that that sense of space, the present moment is much more than just the experiences that are being that are arising within that present. Do you see? Try to just get a sense that the sense of presence is like the space that holds all of the sights and sounds and smells and tastes that are arising within presence. But presence itself is not the sights and sounds and smells and tastes that are being held within it. And so the less we invest in the sights and sounds and smells and tastes, the more we acknowledge the sense of presence that holds all of that. The more invested we are in the sights and sounds and smells and tastes, the less space is available for us to even be able to perceive the moment. And the more we are in tension to the forms of the moment and don't rest within the present formlessness of the moment. To see if you can get a sense of this. The more we rest in the present, the less invested we become in the objects of the moment, the you's and me's and this's and that's, the smells and tastes, the more that space begins to broaden and connect things. And the less reactive we are to each individual experience we are having. And the quieter we become within that space. 
The quieter we become in that space, the less invested we are in the experiences of life, which is all of what Buddhism is attempting to do now. I hope we understand that. Is simply to show us that not to invest in the experiences of life, that they're untrustworthy. They, it does it from a variety of different ways. It says it's going, they're not going to last. Why invest in them? It's like investing in an account that's going to be gone at some point. And so we learn not to invest in the experiences of life, emotionally invest in them, or to even separate them out from the space that holds them, and we relax with greater contentment. And the more we relax with greater contentment, the less sense of self there is in the present. The less sense of self there is in the present because the sense of self had its formation from driving and reacting and wanting and fearing all of the experiences that were in the present. The less reactivity we have to the experiences of the present, the less I am in the moment. And the less presence, the more presence there is in the moment. So the sense of presence, or that space, or equanimity, is directly proportional to our lack of reacting to the contents of the present moment. You see that? So the homework that I gave you is to really open up and say yes to all forms. When we say yes to all expressions and forms that are arising in the present, we are not reacting to anything. We are simply releasing any resistances we have to what it is that's occurring, and therefore the more space will occur. The more presence will fill in when we are not reacting. See it. Get that equation in your mind. See it for yourself, that the less involved you become in the present, the more presence there is in the present. And the more presence there is, the less reactivity, the more warm-heartedness, and the more balance between the perfection of what is and the realization of the pain of what is. Because you don't, you don't, it's not one or the other. Simultaneously, the space sees the pain and the sorrow, and simultaneously it also sees the perfection within that expression of pain and sorrow. And that comes from the intelligence of the space itself, from the presence itself. It doesn't come from a manipulative response to try to get to equanimity as some kind of holding place where I don't have to be affected by by life or the world. It is not a cultivation. It is not a cultivation. And therefore I can't pursue it. And therefore, it's not a place that I can go or something I try to make my practice into. Let me see if I can be equanimous to this experience. If you're in the picture, equanimity is not there. And the more you take up a self-holding position in terms of your equanimity, you can be assured if you keep doing that, you may end up in a mental hospital from disassociation. 
In equanimity, there's no fear. What's there to be afraid of? And it's totally connected because it's connected in love. And there's the end of searching. Why would we search? What are we looking for? It's all here. Because all aspects of the moment, there's no aspect of the moment that's driving us forward to remedy itself, to try to get over it, to try to adjust it, to try to manipulate it. And because there is no reactivity in the moment, there is quietude within the moment. And then equanimity is just that sense of total participation. Usually, when we start moving in action, whatever stillness we oriented, we had oriented to the moment gets lost in that activity because that's where the sense of self starts manipulating through its actions what it wants its own wishes and desires to be. And that's why it's... So it's, there's a kind of subtle way that in action the self comes forward. But to understand that equanimity itself is non-movement, it does not move. The space in this room does not move. Objects can move through it. But the space in this room does not move. And we are always, equanimity is, a, is that available. It's as available to us in this moment as the space in this room is to you. Simply divest your leaning from the experiences to the space that holds the experiences. And feel the absolute perfection that arises from that steady, quiet knowing. But let us be wise enough not to pursue this as some goal in and of itself. It comes on its own through the meditation. And if we realize that the limitation of it is being out of balance and we just, okay, so I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to move towards the perfection and isolation and, and detachment, nor towards the re- emotional reactivity of the, towards the sorrow. I'm just going to stay in the absolute balance between those two spheres and let what comes come. And may it come for all of us. Thank you. Can we just sit for a moment or two? Where does wise effort come in all this? Well, obviously it wouldn't be towards manipulation of experience, would it? Now, I want to say that sometimes experiences, because we're still afraid of them, need to be manipulated so that we can become less frightful. 
right? So sometimes doing some method to the experience or just backing off of it a little bit or making it bite-sized so that we can, right? Might be the, the right course to take. <clears throat> but for the most part, you don't want a manipulative effort in your meditation. So what does wise effort look like? Actually, we were just practicing it in this last meditation. It's very active. At the same time, it's not assertive. It's releasing rather than manipulating. It's relaxing rather than being tense to something. Right? Rather than being disconnected or disjoined or, or pulling back in some kind of detached way, it's being, it's rejoining. It's having the experience up front, close and close. Right? So the sense of self, when it's removed, all objects are, are very close. It's only the sense of self that can distance itself from other, from the objects of experience. If you take yourself out of it, everything is very close. So it's the release of having me do something is wise effort in that sense, you see? So we get very lost, especially early on in meditation, but it goes on for some time, in all of the different ways that we try to manipulate our experience to make it negotiate with it so that we can have a you know have it on our terms but we're not very good at just being able to release all obstructions and do nothing because the sense of self is vulnerable when it doesn't do something it feels vulnerable in that not doing it feels out of control and because what we have placed our faith in is is our control and we don't have any faith about from release or releasing or letting go. We haven't learned how faith, to have faith in letting go. We've had faith in manipulation. We won't let go until we have learned how to trust letting go. When, you tr- learn, when we learn how to trust letting go, then letting go becomes a trusting exercise. It becomes wise effort. You see? But that is not going to affirm the sense of you, the egoic sense of you. This meditation never affirms you. It never gives you credibility as an egoic sense of self. It doesn't, it never gives you an an acclamation. It never gives you an accomplishment. You see, that's the, that's the beguiling, that's the nature of this. It just, you know, because some of us would love to, you know, profess our worth in our meditation, but meditation doesn't allow that. And so you, you start feeling useless. But awareness, the awareness of it, if you don't get lost in the despair of being useless, which is a reaction to your own sense of self, the image of yourself, if you, awareness comes in, fills the vacuum, where the egoic sense of manipulation used to be, presence fills the vacuum. And that sense of presence, I mean, it holds everything. It holds all the paramis, right? And so there's this valuing and faith in, in the letting go because we, there's the per, 
perception and intelligence of seeing what comes in. So fine, I can go. Why would I want to stay when something beautiful, I'm blocking something beautiful? And so faith starts moving in relationship to that release. And that's wise effort. Does that make sense to you? It starts, and I want to say, you know, that it starts with will, because that's all we know. Bringing your attention back to the breath, learning the difference between the breath and thinking about the breath. You know, you have to make those distinctions early on, and the only force that we have available to us is our determination and discipline to do just that. So it starts with will, but we often keep will going long beyond its natural duration. We just keep it going for its own sake and keep claiming reference to ourselves and doing the meditation for ourselves and by ourselves and when it's not ours at all. It has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with us. In fact, it has just the opposite. It's just the opposite. It has everything to do with our absence. Right? So some people say, well, I, I was sitting in the class with you and I had a moment of no self. And then all the way home, it came back in spades, you know, like, which it does do, because it wants, you know, once it sees its own absence, and then it comes back, and it comes back in a jarring mode. It tries to shake you back into its concern, so that, tries to sh- shake you awake, so that you're, you don't ever try to get out of your ego again. Ego's very determined to keep itself in force, right? So, what, what we have to do is be very patient, which is a parami. And the patience allows us to begin to see, the, the ego begins to see that it isn't needed, that it isn't needed. It sees it. And it says, okay, well, I, can, I guess I can shut up because it always thought it was. It was misinformed. But as it sees it's not, it gets quieter. It sees, well, I can be quiet. Everything's going to go on okay here. It's going all going to be okay. Because in its heart of hearts, evolutionarily, the ego was a protective mechanism. And when it sees that the, it's, nothing is fearful, that it doesn't need to exert that sense of protection, then it, it decides that it's okay. That, with the accompanying that, is the awareness that sees what it, the ego really is. It took itself as an entity. It took itself as someone. And it starts the awareness starts seeing it as a mirage, as a, as a, as a thought, as an idea. It's a, and it sees it coming forward and then it's gone. It sees it coming forward and it's gone. It doesn't take a, you know, at some point you say, well, that's, there's nothing to it. So the ego sees itself in that way too and it says, wow, I'm nothing. I mean, I'm really nothing. I'm not just what my mother told me I was going to be. <laughs> I mean, I'm really nothing. And then there's the, the willingness to live that realization is the next component, where you just you live in action, that very realization. You don't just have the realization and don't put it into action. You need to put it into action. Which means what? Which means whatever the self says it is, you have to prove it isn't. And it takes claim in every state of mind. So you ha- we have to hold that state of mind and act not from that state of mind, but from the space that holds that state of mind. See? Because it, it, 
it infiltrates, it has infiltrated every single state of mind. Every state of mind means something too egoically to you. The sense of irritation means I'm an angry person, there's something externally I need to solve, there's a problem out here. It means a whole story, doesn't it? You see? It, and it means none of that. So you have to prove to yourself that it's devoid of meaning. So how do you do that? You just hold the state. in presence, actively. See? That's why it seems to take so long. It's like, gosh. It goes to all of our valuable, treasured sense of me. No. Yes. Um, when you're open-hearted and things come in and you let them out the back, it seems like in the middle there there's something like knowledge and memory, which I can see as good for the ego, but on the other hand also cultivates gratitude. I can. She said when you open the front and you let things go, it seems like the rooms in between the front door and the back door there is something that kind of catches it in terms of memory and and that's uh, the uh, and it has uh, there's a, a sense of gratitude about that well uh, it's interesting um, but you'll you the more space the, the the closer you bring the back door to the front door the more gratitude you'll feel <laughs> So, because you start, you're, there's a, a tremendous sense of love that comes in, not through memory, or um, reflection. Uh, it's because the exposed heart is love, and its availability does not depend upon memory. It depends upon spontaneity, not memory. Memory. Br- makes it sit back in reflection and contemplate on it. And then love comes in its contemplative form, which is very different than spontaneous love. Spontaneous love is is available, full embrace of life. Hmm? So again, we have to be careful that we're not trying to talk ourselves out of something because we think we're giving up something that's very important to us if we give up memory. I'm not suggesting that we don't keep memory, obviously. You need memory. But every experience doesn't have to filter through memory to order to have memory. I mean, I know who you are. You know who I am, the situation here. But when we're talking, I don't have to keep saying, Dominique, Dominique, Dominique. You know, it doesn't have to keep... I don't have to conjure up those memories to appreciate you, right? It can be a spontaneous appreciation. And so the closer the back door comes to the front door, they're actually one in the same door. How could it not be? 
There's no exit here. There's no entrance. It's forever. It's been happening forever. Try to get out of now. You can get arrange the content and the experiences, but now is, ju- is there for the next expression, the next form that it arises in. You leave here, you're in a now that's outside. You leave that, you're in a now that's in your car. The now has never changed. It is the air we breathe. It is the space we dwell in. It cannot be otherwise. The forms change, the experiences change within it, but that which does not change Okay, all. Thank you. (laughs) All right, we have some announcements, if you'll be patient. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.